I had, uh, you know, upper GI endoscopy, helpful colonoscopies, virtual endoscopies, uh, biopsies in places. They try challenging me on different foods, I think. And all the while, it's all happening intermittently. And whenever this happens, like literally, I'm eating a salad, and then two hours later, I kick into this 27-hour cycle where I literally wish for death. It's the only time that I have literally asked my wife and said to my wife in full seriousness that if this continues and does not stop, I need to find a way because I cannot live with this and I need to find a way to leave. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello humanity, I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Growing up in the shadow of Cape Canaveral, Aidan Burroughs had designs on becoming an astronaut. But when Aidan's body started rejecting any food he ate with cramps, fever, vomiting, diarrhea, he of course went to his doctor. In Aiden's family, a lot of people have problems with their gallbladder, and Aiden told this to his doctor. The doctor ran some tests and declared Aiden's gallbladder as well-functioning. But for the next few years, Aiden was not able to consume solid food, and he lived on soup. All the while, seeing numerous specialists in an effort to determine why his body was rejecting the food he ate. During the worst periods, Aiden would have 27 hours of cyclical vomiting in which he wished for the sweet release of death. As if that wasn't bad enough, Aiden also has the neurological disease of ME-CFS, and it keeps him bedridden half the time. In this interview, Aiden and I also talk about the relationship between COVID and ME-CFS, and how the pandemic may be the best thing to ever happen to MECFS research, funding, care, and support. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to Patreon dot com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast 
And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with living with a chronic illness or medical error, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Aiden Burroughs. And as always, a note of caution that some folks may be triggered by Aiden's experiences with the healthcare system. Great. Thanks, Aiden. Uh, so my first question is always the same question for all my guests. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Well, there are parts of mine that are very boring and parts that actually were weird. Um, I was born in Orlando, grew up in Central Florida, go to the beach a lot. My parents, when I was conceived and born, uh, were rock promoters for the area. And so they were doing all the concerts with me in utero and apparently while I was a baby. Um, they got divorced a few years after my mom got remarried to my dad, who's a, who was a, now a professor emeritus in psychology. So and he's my dad and he raised me. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was neat because uh, Central Florida was a nice place to be and, uh, I got to watch and really be inspired by all the rocket launches. Followed Kate Kennedy in the space program very, very closely. Uh, and my desire has always been to get into space. Oh, okay. And I was actually trying for the astronaut candidate program. Is that when your health intersected with that? So let's back up when your health started to go off the rails. When was that? It really all came crashing down in the summer of 2003. I was on uh, reserve duty because I was holding three jobs down. I was systems engineering uh, with my office in California. And I was here living here in Albuquerque and did reserve duty. I was also flying to the East Coast to do something called CISO. And I was writing papers over there for distributed simulations. I went overseas to Britain for, to give a talk to NATO and pulled uh, 72 hours with about two hours sleep. Flew back home on a, straight from England, wasn't able to sleep. Came home and my wife was uh, volunteering with University of New Mexico in the Society for Creative Anachronism. It's where you dressed up medieval do different things from brewing to combat. So I went and I helped out with that literally all day because I landed in the morning, went to the parties, and now I'm like 96 hours no sleep. Someone was sick with something, just a viral flu, kind of nasty. Ripped through all of us, and about half of us got CFS. So if folks aren't familiar with that acronym, uh, sorry, yes, it's chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis. Uh, so what year did you say that happened? It was back in 2003. 2003, so you got the flu and you never recovered. It was a real severe, we all had the, I was actually admitted for a, a high fever. I was a 105 plus. Uh, they had to give me chilled IVs. So living overseas in the military was probably not the best thing. <laughs> right. Uh, just curious, did you receive a lot of vaccines to be working around the world? Yes. 
I was worldwide deployable. Uh, in, in the Air Force, I did something called air battle management. So I just like imagine an air traffic controller, but for when you've got fighters coming in and out. Uh, and did you say that about half the people didn't recover from getting the flu with you? Yes, actually, it was the closest I've seen to a cluster, but I haven't been able to get um, anyone interested because we had a really, really well-defined cluster. So what, what happened then in your life? So you're going to the doctor, you're not recovering from the flu. What's your doctor saying? Uh, my doctor shrugged. I had a hint when, because my first real symptom once I'd recovered and I'd gone back to work where I was going to the Air Force every day at the time, um, since I was on reserve duty, my temperature started flipping around. And we, I mean, they actually took a thermometer in the office. This is the Air Force. And they, and they could see in like 10 minutes my temperature cycle from about 96 to 102 and come back down. And I lost all homeostasis. And so they had to start sending me home. And um, I actually had to have my wife help me in a meeting with the top brass in my unit to um, help describe what was going on because I lost a lot of words. I, was, I had aphasia already and didn't realize it. And for folks who aren't familiar with that term, what's aphasia? Uh, it means that you can't recall certain words that you know. It's that tip of the tongue with, with just about everything. You're like, uh, and if it never comes and it happens a whole lot chronically, that's really a signal of, yes, aphasia. Uh, so you had your wife come in to help explain what was going on with you physically? Mm hmm and mentally, because I was trying to say, I, I can't think, there's, there's fog, there's, there's neurological issues, just like the temperature, and it's happening all over. Now, what we found was that over 70, I couldn't maintain homeostasis over 75 degrees. So I, I had to be in an air-conditioned bubble. And then my wife actually took about a week to quit her job with University of New Mexico to start shuttling me through all the doctors as fast as she could, because everyone was concerned that it was cancer. So I, I was in oncology really very quickly. And they said, nah, nothing there. So I focused on quantifiable symptoms. During the onset, I had tachycardia. Um, and so if I stood up, my heart rate was, and just walked from five or six feet, my heart rate was in the 160, 170 range. What my oxygen saturation is the amount of oxygen that my body is actually intaking to the blood. So it's the same problem we're having with COVID patients that the lungs aren't processing. Yeah, they ran me, my, my wife helped run me through infectious disease, endocrinology, who did the most uh, for me because he started getting metoclol, which actually slowed down my heart rate. I have to take an obnoxious amount of it, it's uh, 250 mils. So that's uh, a congestive heart rate failure is 200 milligrams. So I'm actually taking over the maximum recommended dose. And I've been doing that for 16 years now. GI doc and an internist. And I think that was the workup. It was six or seven different specialties, um, all documenting the same thing from their area. 
and, and that took about a year. And so you're saying that your mom got MECFS in 1992, so you sort of knew what the signs were? When did you? When my temperature started flipping, when I, because I, I would just try to have on my uniform and they had to turn off, they were working on the roof and retarring it in, in my building. Uh, and we had no ventilation and it was the middle of the summer in New Mexico. And, and as I said, that the temperature cycling uh, would just happen back and forth, back and forth. And I remember driving home and I said, I hope it's not what I think it is. Yeah, so you must have witnessed your mother's um, frustration with the healthcare system trying to deal with ME. Oh, yeah. And uh, the only place that she could go was Dr. Climus at the time because, uh, you know, with her background in HIV medication, uh, HIV research, and also Gulf War, med uh, Gulf War syndrome, uh, she, was, she was really outstanding. Um, she's given us a lot of clue birds, definitely. When did your wife get sick with ME? <laughs> so, yeah, this is crazy. She first started showing symptoms after having my son. Which was, what year was that? Um, that, uh, 2009. Okay. And uh, it was very mild until about a year ago. And then, and now she's pretty much at the same level as me. So we're having to kind of rejigger how we do everything. And so what <laughs> level of functioning are, are you guys at? Um, I'm about half bed down. Um, my wife is about, I'd say a quarter. She's still in that push crash phase where she'll work real hard and then she'll just be unconscious for eight, 10 hours and then comes back and it's completely normal. So, and unfortunately that's what we also saw in my son starting about a year, year and a half ago. And he's all of nine years old, 10 years old, sorry. Oh, wow. Uh, to have a kid come down with ME, geez, how's he dealing with that? It depends on the day. Some days he's really good. Some days he goes to the playground um, and uh, he comes back and he literally falls over. He's unconscious through dinner, um, wakes up at nine-ish, and then goes right back to sleep for the night and sleeps a full nine, 10 hours. I think it's affected him more emotionally uh, than physically yet because he's, he's okay with being a little tired, but um, the restrictions are starting to, to box him in some and limit what he can do. And uh, that frustration and, and such, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, I can only imagine being a child sick with ME, how it's hard for oh. adults to learn to pace themselves and not overdo it so they don't have that push and crash routine. Yeah. Um, but kids, kids are supposed to be running around. Exactly. That's exactly right. And um, I'm actually trying some modified pacing kind of stuff using uh, a Quest VR helmet. 
so that he can have controlled environments, controlled sounds, uh, and do some meditation or guided Tai Chi directly in it without having to go anywhere special. So, Aiden, tell me about the other medical errors that occurred <laughs> during your, your journey. Okay, so in the late 2000s, I'd have to, I'd need to dig up my medical records, but it, one of the first things when my CFS hit is my stomach started getting weird. And like, I couldn't eat anything solid for almost a year. So how did you manage that? I learned how to make uh, egg drop soup. <laughs> I, did, I got very creative with soup. <laughs> so that's pretty but, ill when you're really limited on the amount of food you can eat. You're bed bound half the time. That's pretty um, containing of one's life. Oh, yeah. No, I, I was retired from three jobs all three jobs. Um, they couldn't figure out how to pay me though because the military wouldn't release me and so Northrop couldn't pay me and the military didn't have any money for this reservist that was sick lingering on active duty. So it took almost three years before there was literally any pay. So we lost our house, we lost everything. Um, we had some volunteer lawyers help us but in the end there wasn't much to be done. So all of that kind of fed into my system not being happy. Um, and uh, I started having these episodes as time went on where if it, it didn't matter what I ate, but if I ate, I would have really bad cramping. Uh, I would get a small fever and then I would start throwing up and, you know, when throwing up out the other end, so, so some diarrhea. And it would uh, last for about a day and then would go away. And so what does anyone have you do? I have a family history of gallbladder issues, not me personally, but almost every other relative. And uh, I tell the doctor this. So the first thing you do is try doing a fat challenge and I, I'm just fine through it. There's not like a hard block. And what's a fat challenge? Uh, I, eat some french fries, have some uh, uh, monounsaturated fats, or you know, a couple large orders, as I said, of french fries or something fried. And that should, if you have a gallbladder issue, a stone, that should create symptoms enough that they can replicate it. Hmm. Unfortunately with me, it was so intermittent that it wasn't really working real well. Uh, now, there is a punchline to this story. There's a reason it wasn't working well, and the doctors didn't pay attention to that at all, nor did they consider that. I actually made it finally after um, about a year or two to uh, get the GI doc in Durango to refer me to the local Durango hospital, which is actually a fairly new and uh, large facility because it has all of that southern, southwestern Colorado kind of goes there. They sent me in for um, very simple um, sonograms, and they did um, your your lower abdominal sonogram, and they looked at my kidneys and my liver and my pancreas and my gallbladder, and the gallbladder they said was absolutely normal. Uh, so because of that, I had to go back to my GI doctor, and he says, "Well, it's not the gallbladder." 
so at that point, um, they start putting me through like barium enemas, all to, you name a lower GI test and I had it. And uh, I'm sorry, but that was some of the worst testing of any specialist I've ever been through. Maybe uh, as far as pain and everything else. And From the barium, drinking the barium stuff? Oh, the um, enema. Yes, where it went the other way. Uh, and that was painful. Was that the, the toxic acidity of the? No, because they put you under pressure. They completely fill um, your large GI tract, uh, your um, colon. Descending colon, yes, thank you. So your full colon is completely full and under pressure. Oh. And he would purposely do things like time with cramps and then time in between the cramps to see how it all responded. The tech for it was the entire time was complaining about how his buddy was supposed to work the morning and he shouldn't be having to stick a tube in someone's butt to shove his barium up there. And he's grumbling the entire time. It, and they've got an x-ray and I'm laying down on the table and he's trying to show me on the monitor up top. <laughs> He pulls the plug, and you know what that means. There's this painted the whole room in white. <laughs> but uh, there were lots of tests like that. I mean, barium was really my best friend because I had, a, you know, upper GI endoscopy, a couple colonoscopies, virtual endoscopies. Uh, they took uh, biopsies in places. They try challenging me on different foods, I think. And all the while, it's all happening intermittently. And whenever this happens, like literally, I'm eating a salad, and the two hours later, I kick into this 27-hour cycle where I literally wish for death. I hate to say it, but I was a flyer in the military. I've been through POW camps. I know what pain is. I know what that's like. Um, you know, I have a friend who also has HIV as well as ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, and she lives down in Florida. And she says all the time, the HIV, the drugs, no issue, never been an issue. But the chronic fatigue syndrome, ME or myalgic myelitis is, is horrific. And um, that's really controlled her life in ways that she never thought could happen. Yeah, so anyways, back, I, I was having all these attacks and they were lasting almost exactly 27 hours. I was set a watch. And uh, the best the doctors could do was give me, well, omeprazole, Zofram, uh, which controls nausea and throwing up, and hyoscyamine, which is a smooth muscle relaxer. So the combination of those at about double or triple the actual medical doses, which I do not recommend to anyone, please do not do this at home, were able to keep me so that I didn't find a sharp object for myself. But um, it was, uh, it was. What do you mean by that? To stop all the pain <laughs> at the time. Because during these 27 hour attacks, I'm viscerally, they think afterwards it was called cyclical vomiting syndrome that was being kicked off 
by the bladder, by the uh, gallbladder attack. Um, because of my, probably my MECSS underlying. So it was an interaction between the two, the autonomic and the gallbladder uh, and its issues. So what you're saying yeah, is you're taking two or three times the dose of that medication and that was enough of both of both and that was enough to stop you from wanting to kill yourself because you were in so much pain and suffering so much yes i'm sorry that's exactly correct um it was it's the only time that i have literally asked my wife and said to my wife in full seriousness that if this continues and does not stop I need to find a way because I cannot live with this and I need to find a way to leave because I, I can't do this for another 20, 40, you know, I'm, I'm at the time I'm all of like 37 maybe. So it's not like I'm an advanced age and advanced health, but this was something I, I, I was not ready for. And it would trigger, occasionally trigger the tachycardia which would come across uh, at times because it would get dysrhythmic. Um, uh, my heart would lose rhythm. And so I had to go to the ER a couple times. They didn't know how to treat me, whether I was having, no kidding, like I was on nitro for a while because my heart rhythms were getting bad and they couldn't tell what the angina was coming from. And my gut was going and they couldn't tell it was going from and i'm sitting here strapped down throwing up and i haven't had any food i haven't had anything and there were two or three of those episodes and um you know they were scared they were going to lose me so this continued this cycle um uh, so i i went to san antonio to see some gi specialists came back and eventually my gi specialist in durango when he literally ran out of gi tests said Let's send you to the Mayo Clinic. There's a guy there that studies cyclical vomiting syndrome, uh, and I'd really like you to see him. So he referred me down there, and we were able to figure a way to get the, all the kids and the cats and everything down there because you have to find your own hotel while they evaluate you. And, but I, I have to say that the Mayo was really neat because they evaluate you in a way that the rest of our medical system absolutely doesn't do. Um, they literally had a team of doctors that I, and I had a scheduling person and they set me up to see five doctors in a single day. Um, and within a week I'd been through all the specialists uh, and I'd had CTs in my brain, uh, pretty much CTs everywhere, sonograms everywhere. And the doctors were meeting for about half an hour every day discussing what had happened that day and what they had found out and trying to kick back and forth, almost like you would see on a show, the old show House. Uh, and uh, they said, Aiden, we think we have a very, I think you're going to be very pleased. <laughs> like, please bring it. Please tell me. And uh, they're like, your gallbladder is clutch and it's intermittent and it fills sometimes and then it goes away. But we did a HIDA scan and I do not remember the acronym for it, but it's a test where they give you fat with radioactive tracers um, and it goes through your system and they track it through the gallbladder 
and see if the gallbladder responds and actually spits out the bile as it should or how it operates. Uh, and the amount that was making it through my gallbladder or my gallbladder was producing was off. And it was really easy to see when they did a follow-up HIDA scan, uh, which if my doctor in Durango had done, probably would have cut two years of absolute living heck out of my life. To, not to speak of the dysrhythmias and all the secondary symptoms that were being triggered because of my underlying autonomic issues, which the doctor at the Mayo tested, or one of the doctors, and they discussed it, and they thought that that was a secondary finding. And they thought that was interesting, and I should follow up with an autonomic neurologist that they had there. And I followed up with them, and never would they say anything about the ME uh, or the, the myalgic encephalomyelitis or the chronic fatigue syndrome. They avoided it. I would bring it up at times. That was pre-diagnosed and by nationally recognized doctors and had very concrete symptoms that they could look at. But instead, they would only refer to it as autonomic neuropathy, either central or peripheral, or they would break it down to saying that no, that's post-viral fatigue syndrome, which is a slightly different ICD code, but I have no understanding of really, other than the criteria, how it is functionally different. It's like an easy rug to sweep the name under so that you don't have to recognize it or deal with it. And uh, I became aware, talking with some of the staff off the record, that the Mayo, um, at the time, had an unofficial policy that or maybe official, I'm not sure, that they wouldn't see anyone that whose primary complaint was directly tied to ME-CFS. And why, why do you think that Mayo had that unwritten hidden policy? Because of their lack of understanding, uh, a lack of definition of the syndrome, lack of a, a test, that was concrete that they could say was black and white and not interpretive and the expense because it's a whole nother field they're gonna have to train in. And um, the first thing that MECFS does to most people is keep them from being able to work. Um, you know, I didn't make a point about it, but I went from having three jobs to having none. <laughs> and I still volunteered and other stuff and had fun. So. Uh, you know, I was one of those classic type A personalities. And then it crashes. Every doctor, I mean, I encountered it. I had, I had a doctor that refused to give me a, um, um, from, the VA, from the VA, I'm going to, I'll name call them. <laughs> I actually have a little PTSD, I think, from them. But I actually had a cardiologist there, um, or general practitioner, was a failed cardiologist restrict me from being able to get a, uh, see a cardiologist because I wouldn't do an exercise test, do the stress test, which had been contraindicated to me by my last actual cardiologist. He said, no, you're doing a stress test literally every day. Um, all you need to do is stop taking your medications and we get to see it. Um, but yeah, no, the VA refused treatment at the time because of that. Uh, and I had a psychologist tell me I was 
basically a very British line that I was um, medicalizing psychological issues. And I'm like, really? If I had that kind of control over my heart, you know, I, I'd be a millionaire or something. I, I mean, I'd be running marathons. I'd be all kinds of stuff. And, and the other thing, because of, of my mom's past, I would go to each doctor and I would ask them right off the bat. I would say, do you think I'm depressed? And make them look me in the eye. No, no you're not depressed. Okay. Do you know what I have? No. Could it be MECFS? Yes. And that's how it just kept going with every doctor. <laughs> right down the line. Yeah, so ME is medically marginalized and at times invisibilized. And um, yeah, patients with ME are often, like you say, traumatized. Yeah, no, the, the refusal to medical the refusal of medical service the the absolute uh, ridicule uh, I was thrown under, and, and doctors accusing me of lying. I mean, uh, just let's use Occam's razor here. If I have a stack of medical records this big, and I'm you know a foot tall, uh, and I'm coming in with weird symptoms. I don't see how you're not looking outside of the normal horse analogy, um, a typical analogy that most doctors I know use is that they look for horses first. They don't look for zebras. When you're looking at something unknown and complex, you look for a horse. And I think most doctors get stuck on looking for horses. And they, they have that perception bias of what they want to see. And so they, they maybe unconsciously marginalize and block out things that aren't already in their purview. Um, the other analogy I use is the five blind men grabbing an, an elephant. Um, and each of them talks from their specialty, but none of them have the overall of the big picture. I, I call that the systems engineer of medicine and it still doesn't exist and i'm really hoping that one of the things that change in our medical system from covid is that we start to get uh, a systems engineer that knows a whole lot about every part of the body and focuses not on the functioning of any one part but takes a system approach and looks at them as a whole it sounds like a, an obvious thing to do when you're treating the body a complex, interoperable system. You're safe, right? I mean, we have systems engineers for computer programs. I, I, that was what my technical job title was at the time. I had to know a little bit about everything, and if something worked and was, didn't work and was weird, I was the guy who figured it out. And all the guys that were experts in networks or lands or whatever, they 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 had local area networks. Um, they knew their areas by God the best in the world. But you know there was no one that could just walk in and and look at it from uh, clean eyes and start fresh. And I think that that's really hugely missing. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe that's what's going to happen now with COVID. It's, it's kind of ironic that COVID may be the best thing to happen to ME research. 
Yeah, uh, some of the quotes I've been seeing today have been jaw-dropping. Um, I saw when it was a systemic infection that it that like it hit nerves, it hit the neural systems. When we started getting the smell, that's I mean that was absolutely the sign. That's I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I I mean I think we all know that that unfortunately there's probably going to be a lot of people that understand what we've been going through. And I think one of the best things we can do is is help guide and set a path for them to be able to beat down and turn into a highway for us in, in numbers. And that way, hopefully, we can get out of um, whatever state our bodies are in, whether it's an unstable homeostatic state, whether it's uh, an immune system like a uh, part gone wrong, like IL-6 that we're seeing in COVID. Uh, that causes blood vessels and cells to leak all over. But at least they're now considering that, that a virus can infect multiple systems and affect you in ways that they never thought. And that was the big thing that doctors couldn't wrap their head around, I don't think. You know, they saw polio as the one-off. Yeah, and ME in its early days was called atypical polio. And even currently, there are some researchers who think the difference between ME and polio is the location of the enteroviral infection on the spinal cord. Right. So yeah, medicine, as far as advanced as it is and all of the wondrous things it's done in some areas, it is very embryonic in its understanding of the human body and how it works. We are definitely, I, yeah, we are so babies. I mean, we can't, we don't even under, fully understand the metabolic pathways. And with all the research on the meta, metabolo, metabolome uh, or metabolic biome, it, it, has been really some very encouraging research the past couple of years. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a very exciting new area of research that uh, will hopefully shed a lot of light on not only ME, but a whole bunch of other things. Uh, There's a couple other things you mentioned earlier that I wanted to circle back to. So you, your friend, uh, I think you're in Florida, that says uh, she has HIV and she has ME. Mm -hmm. That's the first other person I've heard of who has both of those, but I totally echo her her comment that you know HIV it's a walk in the park. Me I can't even walk in the park. It, right, that's absolutely it, and that's how she describes it. Um, and I hope she hears this because um, hopefully it'll bring a smile to her face. That was really very telling. Uh, and at the time, I was actually working with Phoenix Rising, volunteering and helping admin with them. So she was someone I just had met in the chat on Phoenix Rising. So uh, since my family lives in Orlando, we were able to make it there and actually paid a visit, which is extremely rare in the CFS world. Uh, and it, it was really very nice. And uh, But she really had been through incredible trauma. And none of it was from HIV or any of the experiences. And she had started in the 80s. So she was there for the ACT UP and all of their, all of the um, advocacy to get people to take AIDS uh, and HIV seriously. So she was traumatized by the way she was treated around ME. 
Oh, far more. <laughs> that was, and that was really impressive. And, and she was just incredibly smart. It really took care of herself. And it was a full-time job. And it, for HIV, she took a couple pills. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't even the contest. I mean, it wasn't even close. Yeah, I've uh, worked in HIV research for like over a decade now. So I've met lots and lots of people oh, wow. with HIV. And I can safely say that 99% of people with HIV that have access to meds are healthier than 99% of people with ME. No doubt. Yeah. That, and that really opens your eyes that, to the seriousness. I mean, it, it, even with having it for a few years, it flabbergasted me that, that someone, I mean, this is the great epidemic that I grew up with in the 80s. I mean, what? This is worse? <laughs> How can that be? Yeah, yeah. And it, I find it ironic, I guess, that the AIDS pandemics, you know, everybody knows about it nobody knows about the me pandemic that's been going on for the last few decades uh, i find it shocking i mean i i mean i think there are some episodes that set research in our field back i think um, there was a doctor who who led to a contaminated discovery of of a virus so she did some research and, and kind of set us back. And I think that didn't help. And now, now the other piece of irony that I just saw the other day, millions missing. Okay, what do we do every year for, for showing uh, on May 12th, usually, the, our, our latest protest? has been the empty shoes to show how many people are missing because of this silent epidemic the COVID patients they're using it for now. I just saw a picture in London and they had it all right in front of Parliament. Um, all of the, the shoes stacked out, probably a thousand pairs, uh, saying these are the people now missing from COVID. When wow. are you going to do something? Wow, so, so the COVID patients who are not recovering have co-opted the empty shoes motif that Millions Missing for ME has been using for years. So that crossover, it's, uh, I think the other thing that will really help ME research is if politicians or celebrities get COVID and, and don't recover and essentially get ME. Right. I don't wish it on anyone, but I mean, we've had a couple celebrities and most of them try to hide it. Uh, one of the names obviously was Cher and she considers herself recovered from it, but that um, was somewhat controversial within the community because when someone does that, now the community is highly skeptical of anyone that claims that they can get it and just recover in, in a year or two. Since we don't understand it and, and stories of recovery especially over duration, get fewer and fewer as time goes on. So, but I think we've had some celebrities and they've just done the exact opposite of what they needed to. Um, there's a soccer player that actually uh, my family knows that developed CFS, but she decided that she wouldn't uh, help with the community at all because of some of my time at Phoenix Rising, I got to meet a few authors that were 
secretly underhandled, uh, under pseudo anonymity um, at Phoenix Rising. And they were talking about that their careers would be shattered if they ever came out. So I think you're absolutely right, but we're going to need either someone big enough that they're wealthy enough that they don't care about their career anymore or trying, uh, like our famous Seabiscuit author, yeah, Hillebrand. Um, you know, she stepped out and that was really good. And you're right, we need more and more and more to come out. But I think it has to be people that aren't trying to keep, you know, maybe my next movie, if I get a little better, I'm going to keep it in my back pocket. You know, I'm not going to let anyone know. Or my next book might not be as well received if I have this controversial disease. So you even have that marginalization, marginalization happening with professionals and like you said the, the the people that should be stepping out and helping to show that this is something that isn't rare the problem is is that we're silenced from doing the very thing we do by this disease wow you've just drawn so many parallels with hiv there's that whole hiv aids stigma which is often internalized by people living with hiv and the big famous uh tagline back in the height of the AIDS pandemic was silence equals death. And that right there, I think is the crux and why it's treated differently. And we don't have a body count that we can directly attribute because this is a disease that makes other things more deadly. It doesn't kill you outright. Much again, like HIV. <laughs> yeah. The difference being now they'll put HIV as a cause of death, um, but never, rarely see ME listed as a cause of death, even though it's I, a huge contributor. I've heard of one case that they've ruled in the U.S., just one, mm -hmm. in the entire top 16 years of my experience with it. Yours is probably much longer, um, but even hearing from my mom, whose experience stretches back even further also, same thing. If she died today, it would be dysrhythmia. It would be a primary cause. And me would never even be mentioned on the death certificate. Yep. The medical marginalization is very deep within all of these different institutions. The quarantine. We, my family, we'd all look at each other and went, oh, it's Tuesday. The, the quarantine was no different. It was just the world adjusting to how we act every day because our immune systems are so bad now. So the rest of the world is more adjusting to us than we are to it. Yeah, and they're adjusting to having to live in self-isolation, but they don't have the nausea, pain, and suffering, <laughs> you know? No. Hey. Okay, that's, that may not be appropriate, but you know, the world's tiniest violin again. Yeah. I mean, I know it's incredibly scary, especially with a disease that comes back and forth and has a no kidding body count. Um, and I don't mean to make light or make fun of anyone, but it, it, we react so differently when we're experiencing it versus even your significant other experiencing it or, you know, someone that's abstracted. And it's, bam, you can't ignore it anymore. Yeah, yeah, the uh, 
people who are suffering from post-COVID syndrome slash And I really hope, I, I mean, I, my deepest hope is that they do fully recover and, and that we learn a huge amount about how viruses interact with our genome, our epigenome, our, our mitochondria, and, and, and at a cellular level uh, in depth and how it, it, it works. We'll see if we squander the opportunity or not. Yeah, very well put, Aiden. I, I'm just very happy that I get to to share because my goal is always to to try to help the community and get make it a little less silent. So thank you for doing what you're doing. This is a tough job, especially for someone with ME. Um, the focus uh, uh, to to concentrate on other people uh, at this kind of level is incredibly difficult and incredibly draining. So my hat's off to you, sir, um, really. And thank you. I, I sometimes wonder if I'm at an advantage, though, that my HIV meds may make me a bit healthier than most people with ME. Might be. That would be, that would be a great turn of events. I would, you know, that's a great way to look at it. And I hope that is actually happening. That would say something for all of us maybe looking at antivirals and antiviral and viral load in general. Yeah, I saw a doctor last week who was interviewed saying that people with HIV that were getting COVID were not getting as severely ill as you know the general population. I hadn't heard that yet. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, it follows, absolutely. And I'm excited even to try remdesivir because I'm sure we'll all have an opportunity at some point or another, it, as long as it's safe and effective and, you know, it bears out in trials. I don't want to uh, preempt our uh, FDA and their, their approval system because I think for the most part it works pretty well and uh, anyone that tries circumventing it so harshly is maybe being a little rash. At the, at the very least. So we've been chatting for almost an hour now. You've been sitting up for almost an hour now. How's your energy? I, I'm actually doing pretty well. I'm actually in bed right now and I'm sitting up and I've been working on this. I, I meditate and stuff. So this is a fairly relaxed position. And uh, I want to thank you for your time and energy and wisdom for sharing your oh, experiences thank you. in the healthcare system. Well, thanks to Aiden for sharing his experiences with medical error and his insights into making medicine better and safer. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with living with a chronic illness or medical error, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.